The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Ian Burnside, acclaimed pianist and BBC Radio 3 presenter, discusses his career and collaborations made along the way, particularly that of Susan Chilcott, the late English soprano. Following study at Oxford University, the Royal Academy of Music, and the Chopin Academy in Warsaw, Ian Burnside became a freelance pianist, specialing particularly in song repertoire. He has collaborated with many vocal artists and was close friends with the late soprano Susan Chilcott. After presenting the Cardiff Singer of the World competition, he became a presenter on Radio 3 for many years, fronting the weekly song-orientated show Voices, for which he won a Sony Radio Award. Since then, he presents a show on Sunday mornings for the aspiring classical audience. And welcome. Thank you very much, David. Can we start off, Ian, by your childhood? Can we talk about your childhood? And sure. I realise that you are a Scotsman at heart. And uh, could you tell me how you decided, what was it uh, that brought you into, into this realm? What, what was it exactly that... that uh, that uh, took you down this road? Well, I came um, from um, a very musical family and that my grandfather was uh, a very um, respected um, amateur musician, well, amateur and professional musician. He was a music teacher and a church organist, but he also conducted a Gaelic choir of traditional um, unaccompanied Scottish um, choral music. And I was inducted into this choir when I was about four or five, together with my elder sister and my many cousins. And um, there was always singing and playing in the family. And um, I had an elder cousin and several neighbors um, near where we lived in Glasgow who all went to the same um, piano teacher uh, who who, um, though I didn't know at the time, was an absolutely marvellous teacher, and I expressed um, great interest in, in having piano lessons with her while I was able to bang the top of the piano, and so I was duly sent to her at the age of five. Um, she was a remarkable woman, um, originally from the north of England, who had been a pupil of Arthur Schnabel in Berlin in the 1930s, and who, as was so often the way in those days, um, uh, gave up a concert career to get married, and um, was just expected to teach from then on. Um, but she was a very inspiring and, uh, woman and, a, and a, a wonderful teacher, and so I was in awfully good hands from the age of five onwards. Um, but I, I never really thought I would do it professionally um, uh, until a lot later. I, I went to, a, I went to a, a, a fancy school in Glasgow, um, which was violently anti-musical, violently anti-any of the arts. Um, expressing an interest in classical music was kind of like wearing a dress or something. It was a very <laughs> rugby-playing um, academic school which frowned on any expression of emotion, really. 
and um, and um, ironically, there are a couple of other <laughs> uh, Radio Three presenters now who who were at that school at r- pretty much the same time. So it it just proves that the things that schools try to suppress often come out in the end. Um, and so my my music happened completely independent of any encouragement at school, or rather, despite um, uh, despite the atmosphere there. Then, in later years, you attended Oxford University. I did. That was a tremendous liberation for me. To suddenly, um, I sort of wangled my way in there by a, a circuitous route, and and suddenly to be surrounded by people who were interested in what I was interested in, um, who didn't have to fight for it, was was just pure joy. And I um, I, I had the most marvelous time there, and made friends who've stayed the core of my circle of friends ever since and people of from such a tremendous breadth socially and and um internationally um it was just really a tr- an enormously happy and wonderful time of my life would you say that oxford university really was the uh, starting point for your whole career was that well it was the starting point for my musical career but not my pianistic one um i i did some playing there but i wasn't i wasn't um uh, i wasn't sitting um practicing my chopin etudes i was i was writing um palestrina counterpoint and reading lots of books and writing essays and doing those things it was an academic grounding really and i did some playing on top and um a, a, a crucial thing happened there which was i was given the opportunity i stopped having less with the wonderful Scottish woman when I went to Oxford for for geographical reasons, really, and um, I had the chance to play a piano concerto and and um, realised that I should really have a few lessons on this before exposing the public to it, and so I chanced on a wonderful um, piano teacher who who was working at the time the Royal Academy, a fellow Scotsman called Alexander Kelly, and I went very nervously to have a consultation lesson with him, and and that was the eureka moment which opened my eyes to the possibility that that um, eventually one day I might do this a bit more seriously. He encouraged me to to work at it and to take it seriously as. as seriously enough to go to the Royal Academy after Oxford and uh, see where it led, which is what I did. So he was my piano daddy, really, and um, opened my eyes not just to um, things pianistic, but to all sorts of musical levels and, and also the whole um, the whole kind of emotional process involved in performing, and he encouraged me to explore that whole emotional realm in a, in a rather wonderful way. And as a mentor, has that individual remained with you? for your whole life? Um, well, he did, yes. Sadly, he died um, some years back. Um, but uh, after I finished studies, I would go back and and, um, and play to him now and then, and, and we stayed in touch, and we'd go and have meals now and then, and his family were wonderful with, um, to me as well, and and, um, and have remained friends. And uh, yes, he was an absolutely central uh, inspiration in my musical life. Now, by the time you arrived at the Chopin Academy in Warsaw, did you realize by then that you were to become a pianist? That that was your goal. It was certainly my goal. Yes, that's a, that, that that's true. And but I realized uh, very acutely that I didn't have the technical um, the technical uh, goods to deliver that, and that I needed more study and more discipline. And um, and I decided to go behind the iron curtain, as it then was, um, to get that. Um, I, I considered coming to America, actually, but uh, it was partly put off by the amount of money you needed. And uh, one 15-minute scholarship at the Polish Cultural Institute got me a scholarship, which paid for two years of study. And um, so I'm afraid in terms of brass tacks and, and a hard, hard financial reality, that, that seemed like a sensible thing to do. And, um, and I've never practiced as much before or since, as I did in those two years, I mean that was really the that was really the grounding technically of 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 my playing, I suppose. Now, what was your life to be in the years, the immediate years following that training? Where where were you going at that stage? I was in. I came back to London, and I lived in a very grotty shared house um, with some um, uh, trainee doctors. And I had a little upright piano in a in a very small room and in a 
in a cramped terrace house in, on, on the peeling part of South East London where we had a long-distance lorry driver living next door who, whenever I attempted to practice, would come out and bang and scream and, and uh, <laughs> yell dreadful expletives um, through the window, uh, which, was a, which was a bit of a bit of a downer in the piano front and um, and <coughs> excuse me at that point at that point I was playing mostly solo repertoire and um, and uh, chamber works I did quite a lot of instrumental chamber music and um, and that was the central uh, thrust of my playing and I was doing some teaching I mean I just had to do anything I could to earn a living I did some teaching and I played for some dance classes and you know I was in the bottom rung of the ladder and um and just uh, just did what I could, and um, I have a little I have a little notebook um, somewhere in, in the bottom of some cupboard in my house uh, where I wrote down my earnings for the first two or three years of my freelance freelance life, and I I remember marking with great pride when I was averaging twenty five pounds a week because that seemed to be just a terrific amount to get by on, and I felt very proud of myself. So you know, it, 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 it was kind of tough, but I wasn't really. Expecting, um, expecting much more, and you know, I was scrabbling some concerts together, and um, and and then it then it took off, and a, a few people heard me, and I, I got some nice opportunities, and one thing led to another. You then had these incredible collaborations with with people like Dame Margaret Price, and of course Susan Chilcott. Uh, what? How was that to change your life? These were iconic figures, really. Well, actually, the first iconic figure I had contact with was um, uh, was Victoria de Los Angeles, because um, I, I, I did a tour with her very early on in my career, which landed in my lap. One of my colleagues um, in in uh, Britain was asked um, was asked to do this and couldn't do it, and very generously passed it over to me. And um, I had done very little song work at that point, and, and I. I, uh, it was just the most wonderful experience. Uh, it was not long after her um, husband had died and, and uh, towards the end of her, her career, but I, I, I'd never really worked with a grown-up singer before, never mind such, such, a, such an iconic figure. And, and just to share the stage with someone like that, she was incredibly sweet to me and, and so generous and so unpatronizing. I mean, it must have been a nightmare for her looking back on it, but, um, <laughs> but she could not have been dearer to me. And uh, so that was a kind of wonderful um, introduction to that whole that whole thing, and, and I mean, a, a lot of the a lot of these things. The Margaret Price, the, my first connection with Margaret Price came again through a cancellation um, from a colleague, and and I had to jump in in absolutely terrifying terrifying um, conditions at very short notice for a, con- a concert in Vienna, and um, my then agent. Um, uh, uh, sold me on the basis of a lie in that it was at, it was at about 40 hour, 48 hours notice and, and um, he was asked did I play um, a certain Mozart concertaria, Chiomi Scor di Dite which is, you know, concertaria with piano obbligato which exists in a kind of arrangement where you play the obbligato part and the orchestra part at the same time and it's very tricky, it's very fiddly Yes and, um, and, you know, it's a handful. And this was the opening piece of the program. And my agent at the time was asked, does Ian play this? Because this is a condition of the concert. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course he plays that. You know, he's great at that. And uh, then he rang me up and he said, oh, I've got you this job. And by the way, um, by the way, have you ever played this piece? And I said, no, no, it's really hard. He said, well, you play it now. And so, you know, get on the plane, bit of mad practice, get on the plane, and uh, off you go. But then Cheetah was very generous to me and very kind, and I did quite a lot of concerts with her for a couple of years and, and uh, learned an inestimable amount. There must have been occasions prior to an event like the one that you have been talking about where it was just madness, that, that you were given no uh, time at all to, to pull everything together. And I do remember reading um, somewhere, I'm not quite sure where it was, Ian, about the, uh, the time that you and Susan Chilcott uh, were arriving at the Bristol airport. 
Yes. And, and Susan had forgotten her passport and, and, and had uh, Hugh's passport. And, That's right, And yes. then you realized, of course, that you had left your notes on the I piano. Know my music, yeah. <laughs> uh, does that, uh, does that, uh, does that uh, make you still unshakable in what you do? Or how, how well, does that affect your performance? <coughs> I mean, the thing is, in situations like that where it's so extreme, I mean, that particular occasion was such a confluence of disasters that it's strangely relaxing. I mean, you can only laugh when, when everything goes wrong like that. You can only laugh, and um, you just have to deal with it and, and get on with it as best you can. And, I mean, there is a faint comfort from the fact. Uh, one learns in the passing of time that uh, disasters is what audiences love the best. And... Um, and they're a great kind of leveler, and so long as you can come 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 out of it uh, smiling on some level, uh, people people are tremendously good natured about it. I mean, I've very rarely had experiences when that sort of things happened where where it's ended unhappily. Um, but um, what was the question? What was the question again, David? Um, well, basic do, do? basically, Ian, I'm trying to find out how your your creative juices, how you how, how, how it all works, how okay. it all how it all works when you can have so many external worldly pressures. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, just to go back to that to that very scary um, first concert um, with with Margaret Price. I mean, I think uh, again, looking back now that I'm now that I'm um, bold and uh, bold and advanced in years, I I, I do look back and realise that so many artists. Um, have have a, have a few big chances, and they they come up. And uh, uh, looking back on it, a lot of it as to whether you're going to sink or swim as an artist depends on how you take those those key moments. I mean, they don't necessarily appear as key moments at the time, but you can look back and a pattern emerges. And and I think I think a question of temperament really is whether you're prepared to grasp the nettle when when it comes. And I mean, I remember. I remember when in that particular concert in Vienna, um, all sorts of bizarre things happened. No one had told me it was being broadcast live. No one had told me there was an audience on the stage. I mean, I came on, I literally walked onto the stage and saw that there were people uh, close enough to my piano stool that I could actually touch them, breathing down my neck, literally. Um, <laughs> rather, it's rather daunting and microphones everywhere. And we came to the encores. And I mean, I'd only rehearsed with her for an hour or so. And we came to the encores, and I realized that I was about to play music which I not only hadn't rehearsed with her, but hadn't actually practiced. I mean, Strauss Morgan, which is, although slow and technically easy, is still a great test of, a, of, a, of you know, the song pianist skill. Um, I thought, oh, okay, here we are. Well, yes, let's just do it. And it just you just have to kind of you know get your put your head down and do and give it your best shot. There's no point being prissy or precious about it, and um, and try and enjoy the moment and realise you're sharing the stage with one of the world's great artists, and not not forget to have fun. How important is that collaboration, that personal relationship with the artists around you, Ian? Well, I think it's vital, you know, and I think again looking back. Looking back at the career I've had, you you you, you see that um, even though I never trained as a uh, as an accompanist or as someone working in song, it's become my uh, the 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 um, absolute focus of my performing career, and um, and and it does make sense in many ways because I've always been interested in languages, in poetry, and and, and I just love the human voice, and and um, there's no point doing the job I do if if if, if you don't adore the human voice in all its variety and in all the variety of temperaments of the singers that you work with and um and uh, with any collaborative artist you know you just you have to have some chemistry with 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 your collaborators i mean it doesn't mean you have to go to the pub every night or um or or or, or spend huge amounts of time socially with them but you have to click on some level so that when you walk on stage together you know you are fighting on the same team um uh, you know, in the trenches, and um, and that's a wonderful feeling, and I love that, and it still absolutely energizes me every time I do walk onto stage because because there's no point working with people if you don't um, feel some kinship or some some shared energy, and if you can't bounce things around in performance and give one another artistic you know ideas and uh, throw things musically at, at at your collaborator. Dear Clara, good morning. 
I have a mystical proposal that you must grant. I shall play the adagio from Chopin's variations on La Cidale. If you do the same thing at exactly the same time, our twin spirits will meet each other as we play. In spite of continuing animosity from Wieck and an absolute embargo on any communication between them, Clara and Robert continued writing to each other. Dear Mr. Schumann, I have some birthday requests for you. Don't drink so much Bavarian beer and compose lots of music and write me plenty of letters. I call out to you, for only you can hear me. May gracious God Almighty whisper to you the words I'm forbidden to express. Music is such a gift. What could be more beautiful than to clothe one's feelings in sound? Oh, Clara, you have brought me back to life again. I am your wife, Clara, who is devoted to you with all her soul. Is a dark side to my life, and one day the secret of it will be revealed. They told me he had less than a year to live, but if I insisted on seeing him, the shock to his system could make the end come sooner. No two souls could ever be more married to each other in eternity than ours. I was terribly interested. The the work that you enjoyed with Fiona Shaw and Susan Chilcott. That was a bit of a departure, wasn't? Yes, that was a, that that was marvelous. That that started um, uh, that started as a blind date in Brussels, um, where Sue had a great following. She she sang a lot there at the Opera House, and um, I was invited. They have a wonderful series in Brussels called Poetry and Music. Um, musique et poésie, and um, and uh, I was invited by Sue to join her in uh, um, an evening which combined the poetry of Emily Dickinson with um, the Aaron Copeland, Emily Dickinson settings, and um, I think what the this, the series expected was, and Fiona was uh, Fiona Shaw was the um, actor that they had engaged, and uh, neither Sue nor I had ever met Fiona. And I think what the um, Brussels organisers had imagined was that um, Fiona would sit in an armchair uh, with a, a volume in her lap and read from them. And um, Fiona arrived and said that she'd never never uh, read from a book on stage in her life and wasn't planning to start now. And so we ended up uh, kind of throwing together some uh, some staging elements and made it an, into a rather more visual evening. And and um, um, Sue and I just fell completely in love with this wonderful whirlwind of energy and ideas and creativity that is Fiona. And uh, and it led to further collaborations and and um, and just wonderful experiences for for all of us. I think. That was a big departure for you, uh, was it not? Yes, it was, and um, and an entirely positive one. I mean, just being surrounded by um, singers and other musicians the whole time, uh, to to work with an actor of that of that level and just a woman of such such extraordinary intelligence and energy. It, 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 I mean, the only the only image I can use of a whirlwind entering the room, you know, a tornado. I mean, it's just it's an almost it's an almost physical thing, and and I just you know we just laughed the whole time, and and um, it, uh, it, it's been a huge inspiration and influence on me actually. And also, I find I, I have to confess, I find a lot of um, concerts I find very dull events. I think the, one of the great challenges to classical music at the moment is reinventing the concert. I mean, the idea of going and watching a hundred people in tails playing a symphonic concert with a conductor. I mean, I just find that a, a, a very dreary and particularly visually unappealing way of spending an evening. And um, however great the music, I just find it as an event very stale. So. Um, uh, having having a, a visual, and in this case also verbal component, 
um, to play with. It just it, it's just a new challenge. It uses a different bits of your brain, and uh, I, I I feed on that and and relish it. Now, is that uh, perhaps why you went about devising the concert series uh, for organizations like the Bath Festival and the Crucible in Sheffield? I mean, was it a, uh, one of your remits there to, to try and do something very different? Yes. Well, I've, I've always loved programming, and I've always loved, um, I've always loved um, helping singers. Um, if they're prepared, if they're prepared to uh, take the leap of faith, helping helping singers devise programs that suit them. I, I mean, one of the things one of the things about um, having played this song repertoire uh, song repertoire for a number of years now is that um, because I work with um, a whole range of singers, have worked with singers of different generations, different voice types over the years. As a pianist, you build up um, a, a much bigger kind of reservoir of repertoire than any single singer can. And so you tend to know what's out there. And putting it together in interesting or imaginative ways is a challenge that I absolutely love. And, and finding things which suit a particular temperament or particular build of singer that they might not know about or might not have thought of or what they might have thought of and thought, no, I can't do it. And you say, well, you know, have you ever thought of um, putting this with those Bartok songs? Or, well, there's a Volf piece there that you might not know about. And, you know, why don't you try that? And here it is, why not have a look at it? And I, I, yeah, I love that. And yes, so an extension of that was being asked by various festivals and concert series to um, curate, is the buzzword now that we use, this side of the Atlantic, and to curate um, different um, programs or series and things. And yeah, I just adore doing that, love it. So it's fair to say that you have to become much more than just a pianist. Well, we have a whole, um, there's a whole gaggle of us over here, um, uh, again, this side of entrepreneurial pianists, I think you know uh, Graham Johnson has been a great inspiration in this um, in this field. In that, in that um, he's shown he's shown us all that uh, you, you, there, there can be more to being an accompanist than just sitting and waiting for the phone to ring and you know carrying the diva suitcases to the train. That um, that you can actually uh, be creative and imaginative with this, and also make your own opportunities. And um, and I think that that fits that fits well with the whole spirit of the times that that you know why why just wait for a, a, a promoter to get in touch with you why not why not see what you can make or you know, actually create something it's amazing you you have achieved so much and, and there i see that you have master classes uh, particularly at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. <laughs> that must be a completely different uh, departure yet again. How, how does that work for you? Oh, well, I've been doing the Guildhall. I've been at the Guildhall for over 20 years now and uh, 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 doing a variety of jobs. And um, and I have a very happy relationship with the, the school. They, 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 um, they give me a very free hand in what I want to do and, and indeed encourage me to... Uh, to do some rather unusual, again, um, go a bit off the beaten track uh, in, in terms of the work I do. No, I don't. I don't think of it as a departure. I think of it as a, just a natural continuation. I've always um, taught or coached in some capacity, and um, and I, again, I feel very energised by the young uh, the young people I work with. There, some of whom are enormously talented, uh, singers and pianists, and um, I think I think it's vital to see how these how these kids are coming through. And I mean, they are our future, and and. And to be um, part of a team that's uh, helping shape and energize them, I think, is a, is a great privilege. In preparing uh, for the many uh, concerts and events that, that take place over the course of the year, do you have to immerse yourself uh, at home? Do you have to find a lot of uh, time um, on your own to be able to prepare yourself? Oh blimey! Have to, have to is not quite the right, um, the, the right verb. Ought to, uh, ought, <laughs> ought to um, is 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 more appropriate. I mean, the thing is, it's your own time that always gets edged out. I mean, I'm a multitasking um, trap in that I, I do various things, you know, in in the course of the normal week, including make a make a weekly radio program. And what 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 happens is everyone rings you up and wants a bit of you and as ask for you to do this or do that or come and come meet about this, talk about that. No one ever rings you up and says, Ian, uh, did you practice today? I mean, it's the, it's, 
that is what's the easiest thing to be edged out is your own playing, your own preparation, your own space. And that is, of course, what ends up being squeezed. So at a certain point, you have to shut up shop and not answer emails and, and put on the answering machine and the phone and just, just do it. Because, I mean, I am, I am at core a pianist, and we have built-in guilt mechanisms uh, with very precise timing uh, devices which say at a certain point, uh-uh-uh, when did you last play? You know, uh, is your fifth finger still working? Get to the piano stool. And you ignore that um, nagging voice absolutely at your peril. So I try and listen to that nagging voice, but, um, but uh, yeah, never enough. It's interesting that uh, you moved into Radio 3 presenting. Is that, uh, is that demanding on you? that but again I, I, on one level on one level it's a new thing and a different thing but in another way again it's i mean i think talking about music that you love is a very natural thing to do and and um it's an awful lot easier than playing it and uh and i think the two complement one another and i'd never want to just talk about it um but but since that the whole presenting thing has become part of my life, I think, um, I, I think again, uh, uh, there can be such a such a good and and positive cross fertilization between those two two spheres. And I think I I've made peace with the fact that I am a multitasker and that I'm I'm I, I'm happier doing a portfolio of things than I am just doing one thing. When when I was just playing, just doing recitals, um, I had a couple of really busy years where I just got so so completely um, bound up with the playing and preparation of recitals I, I, that I, I stopped enjoying it and I'd go to the piano and open the music what is it today oh here we go and it, it was very very relentless and now I'm terribly jealous of my time at the piano I love practicing I ache to get there and I think that's the way to do it it keeps it fresh at least for me I mean I can't make it a formula for anyone else but um it's a very good way to carry on loving your playing. Looking back with those that you have collaborated with, Ian, um, I would like to, if I may, focus on Susan Chilcott. Please. I know how very close you were, um, and you are aware, of course, that I, I met her, had the privilege to meet her uh, back in 2001. What an amazing human being. Uh, an amazing artist. Uh, what was it that that serves as the greatest memories uh, with that collaboration with Susan? Oh heavens! Oh heavens! Oh, that's such a tough question. Um, oh, blimey. Um, well, I I don't know that I could single out many uh, many moments. I mean, the what the. the the, the, the whole story of, of Sue and her singing and her career is, is, is really one big arc to me. And, um, and having been in on it from very early days um, was a joy and a privilege. And, and also I was there to witness what an unimaginable amount of hard work went into it. I mean, she, she, she was just such a grafter and she, just, she was so relentless in her pursuit of excellence and always wanting to do it better and find out why something wasn't working and how to fix it and then what to do better and what things to do new and um that just that, that the spirit behind that and allied to this enormous collegial generosity she had was was um was just uh, was just something completely out of the ordinary now does she have a great influence on your music your your uh, way of working No, and also we didn't. Uh, we di we very frequently didn't see eye to eye over things. I mean, very different ways of working and very different ways of uh, often of of um, seeing individual pieces. And we had a whole kind of um, we, we used to laugh about uh, a sort of role play we had in it. Uh, she thought I wanted everything too fast, and I would always try and move her on. And um, and uh, we had the best natured of arguments about these things and um 
but again, once you, you know, it's the great difference between uh, chewing something over, learning something together in the practice room, and then walking on stage and um, and actually doing it and being a united a united front on the stage. And one of the one of the greatest compliments she ever played. We we did a rather um, a rather awkward recital at one point in a rather testing circumstances, and Sue was Sue was very nervous and and um, and not very happy about the the whole situation. And we came off stage, and she said she said, you know, I have to tell you the greatest compliment I can think of paying to you is that I sometimes don't even know you're there. And she said, I hope you don't. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound unpleasant. And I said, No, I take that as the greatest compliment. If you can feel, if you can just forget about me being there, I'm, it means I'm doing something right. And um, so it's a kind of, you know, it's like that. It's the old trust game where you have to fall backwards into someone's arms. I mean, I think that's part of the accomplice job. And uh, setting up, setting up a, a, as parameters where the singer feels she can do what she wants and with luck soar. That's what we aim for. Her her singing roles, uh, Britain and Janicek, uh, for yep. example. I mean, how absolutely incredible! Um, would you say that, that those were probably among her finest performances? Yes, certainly. I mean, I know, um, and I mean, I I I went and saw quite a lot of her um, opera work. By no means all, but I saw quite a lot of her opera performances in different places, and. Um, and uh, yes, her Britain heroines, Ellen Orford, um, and the governess in turn of the screw were marvelous roles for her. Um, she was also very funny when she sang Helena in A Midsummer Night's Dream at English National Opera. Um, she was so good at, at doing tragic heroines that um, she didn't get much chance to do comedy, but uh, she was fantastic. Um, uh, she was very, very funny as Helena. and. Um, and I heard, though I never saw her sing Alice Ford and Verdi Falstaff, also marvellous, so much sparkle to the voice. But, but yes, her great central roles, we used to laugh about her white nighty roles because uh, sooner or later it seemed that most of the roles she was in and most of the productions required her to um, flit nervously about the stage wearing nothing but a white nightgown. And she was awfully good at that, and, and she always looked ravishingly beautiful in it and uh, she often had to hug walls she often had to be in her white nighty being anguished against a wall um, but she did all these things so so spectacularly that uh, that um, that you can see why it happened um, I think to, to, on top of um, Britain and Janacek I think we have to mention Verdi I mean her um, Desdemona in Otello was an absolutely great role a signature role for her and it's tragic that she didn't get a chance to record that commercially um, though there's a wonderful YouTube clip of her um, which I would encourage any of your listeners to check out um, it's, uh, it gives you a tremendous sense of who she was even in just a, it's just a few minutes of her singing the Willow Song but you sense instantly uh, her stage presence as well as the, the, the beauty of her voice and and uh, the, the radiance of her spirit. And I think I think she would have gone on to sing more Verdi, um, you know, had she lived. She was really just cresting into her prime, and I think she would have gone on and sung other um, Verdi roles just absolutely marvellously. That, that suited her vocally as well, tremendously. Now, it's widely accepted that not only was she a wonderful soprano, but she was also a quite amazing actress. Yes, she was. She 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 was uh, exceptional, and and also, I I think uh, one of the one of the one of the ways in which she was such a, a a dream as an opera singer is is that her voice and her acting were one, and she looked like her voice, if you know what I mean. Um, she there's a lot of talk in opera about the package, uh, you know. Um, uh, 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 and about how you know directors only like people that look a certain way, and they have to you know if you're if you're singing a dead king or if you're a bass, you have to be six foot four, and if you're a soubrette soprano, you have to be petite, and all these things. Well, Sue, without trying or being in any way manufactured, was that package, and that in that she she um, she she just looked so marvelous in those roles. She had such presence. She she moved beautifully. She was very athletic. Um, and uh, 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 and then she also, and, uh, I mean, the acting side of things was something that she worked on as compulsively as the um, 
musical side and she was very blessed with working with some tremendous directors um, who demanded great things of her and and showed her how to access emotionally and physically uh, what they wanted. I mean, Willy Decker, um, German director, was hugely influential and, um, and uh, um, directed her in several of those key white knighty roles that we've mentioned already. Looking back on that amazing life, it, it must seem so terribly sad that it was it was cut short when when you had so many years that you could have uh, collaborated with Susan and further developed your own work through that partnership. Absolutely, I mean the whole the whole thing of her dying was just the cruelest, saddest thing that I I have ever personally experienced, and and that it should happen to her. When it happened to her, it was like some, uh, it was like, just like some extraordinary, hideous, oh, I don't know, almost like some divine practical joke. It was just so completely um, wrong and awful and cruel. And and because I was so bound up in the personal, when, when she was diagnosed with cancer the second time, when, um, when it came back, uh, I was so involved in the... Uh, practical side of supporting her and trying to help her and, and the whole domestic circumstances that I actually didn't think of what you just mentioned, um, this whole thing of not uh, not keeping our musical partnership going. It, it literally didn't cross my mind until we were rehearsing for what turned out to be um, our last concert together and the last time she sang, which was a recital in Brussels with Fiona Shaw, this time with Shakespeare settings. And I vividly recall playing uh, the Von Williams song Orpheus with his lute uh, in rehearsal with her being over at the other side of the stage where fortunately she couldn't see me and realized thinking this is the last time I'm going to play the piano with this woman singing and the combination of the thought with this rather poignant touching music I just had tears streaming down my cheeks because it just it just hit me almost like a sort of punch in the face and uh, you know, it's just another, I mean, it's not in the broader scheme of things, it's, it was, it's not the central tragedy, but it was just one of those terrible sadnesses to uh, layer on the many that were already there. 
your work, though, in the future, <clears throat> uh, obviously influenced by the likes of uh, Susan Chilcott and others, um, uh, how do you plan to, to advance from here? How do you plan to take your career? Oh, David, well, who knows? I mean, look, I love playing concerts, and I love working with different singers. I'm very blessed with... I, I have various partnerships um, with wonderful um, singers that I, I treasure and adore, and um, I look forward to those blossoming and developing, and um, I'm working with a whole bunch of new ones at the moment. Um, I'm about to record with a wonderful Russian soprano, Yekaterina Siurina, and, and again, one just gets so energized by different personalities, different musical backgrounds, different repertoire. And there's so much great music out there that, that, um, that, that, uh, that it's just, it's just one of, it's, you know, one of these, uh, it's like a resurrection myth. You just, you just find new ways, new avenues to explore. And um, I'm very interested in the recording process. I'm making a lot of CDs at the moment, and uh, you learn a lot about your own playing that way. So I'm, I'm keen to keep all that going and explore all that. At the same time, um, I don't know, I might take on some fresh broadcasting challenges. I've got a documentary about Hugo Wolf coming out shortly. Um, I don't know, I may focus in different directions there. Um, who knows? I, I, I might even try something completely fresh. Let's let's wait and see. I mean, I think it's very important not to get stuck. I mean, I want to carry on doing my same core activity of playing and recording. Um, but as for the rest of my life and the and the different balances, well, I think it's good to keep an open mind and and, and not get stuck in one particular groove. And do you think maybe that? the theatres that you, you work in, the stage that you work on, is perhaps under pressure uh, economically? Oh, it certainly is. It certainly is. There's no question. I mean, we, we're, we are in recessionary times here, and the arts are always vulnerable. And within the arts, the classical music is vulnerable. I mean, the, the, the whole thrust of uh, entertainment now um, is away from the, the the not just the repertoire but the values of the music that I that I work with and adore, and uh, it is a challenge to all of us to find ways of keeping that music relevant, uh, keeping it uh, uh, keeping it of interest to people under the age of seventy, uh, to find some relevance and to and to make it speak to them uh, either visually or in terms of. Or technologically, I mean, we have to deal with new media and find ways of harnessing that um, that uh, that can serve God as well as Mammon, if you like. That 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 are, are of artistic relevance to what we're doing. Yeah, the big big challenges. Yes, it it seems that as the the world opens up, uh, you have a uh, the the incredible dynamics of social media you have uh, new media delivery systems uh, you, you have all the technology now here in this country with films such as avatar where you're looking at 3d um there is a possibility that that could take people away from the theater setting and immerse them in something else i guess yeah it's true i mean i find less threat from that than from things like the x factor and uh, I mean, these, all these um, hideous TV shows, which are about people who do things badly, and sort of celebrating that, the idea that anyone can have a go. Well, if you're a pianist or a ballet dancer or something like that, you know that not anyone can have a go of what you do. But it's about years, decades of pain, <laughs> pain and suffering, and uh, in the case of ballet dancers, and, you know, long, long graft. I'm also very interested in China. I'm very interested in the way... Um, in the way that, uh, particularly in the solo piano world, uh, so many amazing um, pianists are coming out of there, and uh, I think that I think that could actually, in the long term, be of huge value to us all. I think they're going to energise us and and uh, show us ways forward, and uh, not not just play you know dead German people's music better than us uh, who do it already, but but I, I think I think there are lots of surprises uh, of a very positive nature that could be coming out of that continent soon. Well, in the last couple of minutes of the program, Ian, <clears throat> I know that you uh, live with uh, young Hugh. And, yes, uh, who, his son. And uh, 
How is how is that life shaping up for you? That must be wonderful to have a part of Susan Chilcott in your life. Uh, yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. He resembles her in ways that even he doesn't realize, um, physically and temperamentally. And uh, he's a wonderful. He's a wonderful kid. He is a huge handful. Um, he he he's. Uh, he, he's, what can I tell you, he's 11 years old, big and bold, a very strong personality, uh, bright as a button, very musical. He's a cathedral chorister uh, with a beautiful little voice, and uh, he plays the French horn and the piano and uh, has strong views on pretty much everything under the sun. Um, but yes, I think his mother would be very proud of him, and uh, he's a great kid. So possibly he'll be following in both of yours uh, uh, footsteps. I very much hope not. I hope you'll become a lawyer <laughs> or a doctor. I think it's about time someone around here had a proper job <laughs> and, uh, and, and look, will look after me in my old age. No, we've got quite enough music in the family. Look, uh, Hugh is someone who will do what he wants to do and uh, that may well be music. Who knows? It's very early days. Uh, if it is, um, if it is, then I will help and encourage him. Uh, everywhere I can, but uh, but it's it's all up to him. Seems like a long time ago, Ian, since I saw Hugh on that beautiful grassy verge outside that cottage in Timsbury. When, yeah. When I when I met them that time, and uh, yeah. he stood out on that garden uh, playing with my my daughter for for some time, and uh, it's wonderful memories. Well, we should get them back together again. Absolutely. Ian Burnside, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, your your time is so appreciated, and and I do hope that that cold uh, uh, improves. Thank you very much, David. It's been an enormous pleasure and privilege. Thank you. To our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. Wherever you may be in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management 